Hello, and welcome to the TOA podcast, where we invite readers to eavesdrop and interlope on conversations among the Offending Adams editors and the authors we publish. I'm your host, OBBS, and for this Editor's Roundtable episode, I'm joined by my fellow TOA editors. Andrew Wessel. Whitney Holmes. Ryan Winnett. Dominic. At the Editor's Roundtable, we sit down and ask each other questions about the writing we enjoy and the work we do as editors and writers to put art into the world. This conversation, recorded at the end of 2020, considers a question from Wit. So the offending Adam, this thing that we're doing here, uh, is uh, entirely volunteer run. So I'm just sort of curious uh, for each person to sort of say a little bit about uh, why do you do it? How do you do it? Uh, how does it fit alongside your day job? I, I have so many complicated a- answers to this, and I don't want to get into a larger discussion about the nature of labor in this country and capitalism writ large. But but the, I had one of the questions that I thought about sort of developing is that, you know, um, I have a friend uh, who works very periphery to a very expensive, perhaps arguably evil industry. And from time to times, I have the opportunity to listen to that friend's phone calls. And everybody on that friend's phone calls is fucking brilliant. Like the smartest, most energetic, just capable people I've ever heard, right? And it always frustrates me to hear all of this brain power kind of in, in a room, you know, working through this industry and this industry sort of intent is to exploit and maximize profit. Um, and I'm always like, man, everybody on that, that call friend is so smart. I, I hate that they're doing this thing. Um, and my kind of question after I read wits is similarly here too, in this room, we've got the opposite problem. We've got all of this brain power getting together every week to do this thing, to expend all of these efforts and resources, and there is no sort of economic payoff. So these people that are selling their souls to make $300,000 a year in consulting um, are like the opposite end of our spectrum. That is to say that I don't know why we do it, because there is no kind of incentive other... Oh, and then this sort of larger critique of labor is always the sort of you know, if you give people more money via uh, minimum wage or sort of handouts or stimulus incentive packages, they won't work. And I always think of sort of, I guess it's the David Graeber argument, right? That, that people work no matter what. You don't have to incentivize it. If you take somebody, you put them in a room, and you say, I'll give you $150 an hour. If you say, I'm not going to do anything, they will put together these sorts of products like we're, we're doing. Um, but why this product specifically? I think it's important what when we started the journal over 10 years ago to rethink what kind of poetry publishing could be um, and to sort of understand that it wasn't these big, slick magazines that we could create a space uh, for people to put out work into the world and sort of curate that space differently. It's important to make things. It's important to give others a space to make make stuff. Y'all are also 
really smart and you know stuff about poems. And I know Wit, Nick and I have done our poem a day thing for a long time, as much poetry as we can write. And for, for me, for many years, um, especially outside of grad school, that was my poetry community. Um, and I didn't, I mean, I've always sort of in the back of my head considered poetry a teen sport in some fraught metaphor, but uh, it was also, I mean, I think genuinely the fact that I could write alongside strangers for the most part, we didn't, you know, Nick and I met really in person this year, um, even though we've been writing kind of alongside and like knowing each other for a while. Uh, there's So that connection is really important, but I, I, I think it's more a testament to um, if people are going to make things, then let's make good things. And like, why can't we make things with our friends? And uh, the things that we make also allow other people to have a lot of space. So I, one thing I really love about TOA is how author facing it is and how it really does cultivate um, an intimate reading relationship. So it's not just about the poems that we're putting out in the world, but um, a more considered approach to, I think what we probably individually consider an intimate transaction between a word and light and eye and brain, which I don't think those are words that we've stricken from the list of like shitty things poems can be about, but uh, light, eyeballs, brains, all of that is happening. And yeah, birds, bones, air, same thing. Teeth. Teeth. Yeah, that, I'm trying to think back to kind of the impetus to, to starting things. I mean, I know that kind of one impetus kind of on my part, at least like emotionally, psychologically, was just looking out and feeling like there was just like a lot of places not publishing things in the way that I wanted them to be published. Um, and I mean, I can like wax poetic on the details, but it's like I hated picking up a journal and seeing one poem by a writer that I'd never heard of and not knowing what to do with those like 21 lines and 82 words and that it's just this like disembodied thing that's smashed among a million other disembodied things in this journal and i'm just kind of like okay like maybe i like some of these terms of phrase but like i don't know what to do with this um and so there were these things where it's like i just felt like trouble accessing these like ways of reading um in ways of like bringing things in so it's like i want a publication that I can read um, that's like legible to me. Um, and then kind of on the other side is just recognizing that like, and maybe being a, like part of the appeal for me is that poetry is this thing that's not, has no economic benefit in this like capitalist structure and that it only exists if people kind of put their labor and their work into it. Um, and just this like abiding idea that like, maybe I'm totally wrong, but just like this, like conviction that, that these things deserve to exist and need to exist and have value, even if that value is not recognized in the kind of current economic structure. And I mean, just the fact that people have been writing these things for like millennia is probably like, should be like enough evidence that there's value to it. Though, again, it's people still like look at me like I'm crazy, um, you know, but just kind of acknowledging that like, I believe that this thing has value. This thing will only exist if someone goes and does it. Um, and so I'm, I guess, going to go and try and, and do it. 
Um, and, and yeah, so I think that, that speaks to kind of some of the things that y'all were talking about. Um, but then, yeah, that's, I think, two of the big kind of motivational factors kind of on, on my end. Um, yeah, and then, like, creating a community. And I felt like we did create a really cool community, even though it was digital. But, like, when we would go to AWP and authors would come by and hang out with us. Um, and I did feel like we, we did that as well. So I, uh, to answer the question, I played basketball in high school and I was not very good. And my senior year, I knew that I would get the worst kind of playing time. So I would get out on the court when we were either winning by an insurmountable margin or losing by an insurmountable margin. And I played anyway because I was playing basketball because I liked playing basketball and because I liked the people I played basketball with. And I think that there is a lot of analogies for me between playing basketball and writing poetry in which I don't necessarily think I'm very good, but I like doing it. And I love being around people who also like doing it. And back in high school, when I was playing basketball, there was a culture around the sport. And it wasn't, I mean, there were aspects of it that were not great, but there were other aspects that were really affirming and provided me a sense of community and a sense of agency around people who had similar just perspectives or unusual perspectives I wouldn't have encountered otherwise. And so um, I remember when we were talking about trying to get TOA back up and, and, and running, and it was a very exciting idea for me because as especially Andrew and Nick can attest, um, without like sort of regular meetings, I just disappear and it's not a deliberate or mean thing. It's just, um, I think without other people, I just sort of, I just go by myself and kind of live by myself and it's not necessarily the best thing. So, um, I, I think that, uh, being a part of this is very exciting and it gives me a sense of community and it gives me a sense of agency. Um, and even just in the last, in the last month or two, just, the, the kinds of selections that, that we found in poetry has really helped my own work and, and really kind of opened my eyes to developments in the world of poetry I would have never encountered on my own. So that's, that's why I do it. My brother is a lawyer and he's a good one. Um, and so like growing up, he knew once he joined the debate team that he was going to be a lawyer. And so, I mean, I wish I could like illustrate what that would have I mean, picture me just with more facial hair and a lot more confidence. Uh, he's He was really, really good at what he did. He's also just like the kind of person who enjoys using language to be right. So um, teen court was great because he was short and bullies often showed up in teen court and he got to put them in their place. And I think that like afforded him a sense of empowerment. Um, it sounds like I'm talking shit about my brother. He's brilliant. I love him so much. Uh, but you can you can see that we were inverses of each other. So um, when I think about like why do this, like, I think about the alternative. <laughs> like I don't I don't 
want to serve that God. So I, I just I just tell people that my brother and I, um, we're both poets, but we face in the opposite directions. Um, mm. And we're like on the same spectrum of language, but we're serving opposite gods. And I don't know necessarily what that means. Uh, but I think it um, allows more of an expansive definition for what can count as a poem. Um, and maybe Ryan, the way that you talked about being on a basketball team, I really enjoy that sentiment in terms of how language, like we don't speak in poetry, even though we probably are all write poems or have written on our own. Um, but language is doing such a, such a totally different thing. And we're using language to serve this, this larger poetic function, um, whether or not it means anything. And I like that we're divesting to our own detriment from like some institutional support. We're like, fuck it, we've got this on our own. Um, and there's something kind of, uh, wildly. Yeah, I think it's great. I'm super into it. With part of your question was also like how, what we do, um, fits in with our like regular lives has yeah. can I ask you that question just because I, I feel like I don't know I'm, I'm so curious because as a teacher I will continue to talk about it but like from a non-classroom perspective how do you how do you find that for you for yourself um it's interesting so uh I I think I I've been in the position recently to be hiring some copy editors and um, I I think that copy editing and poetry sort of like have this nice little marriage. Some of the best uh, copy editors I've encountered are also poets because you have to think, you know, there, there are rules that you have to follow, but then within that you have to exercise great creativity and also the copy editor's job is to make the writer sound more like themselves uh and make the piece like the best that that writer has to offer not uh more in line with what how you would do it or or something like that and so you're constantly like kind of being a chameleon and uh, you have these, like, the set of rules that you must apply, but then outside of that, everything else is, like, trying to interpret, uh, uh, step into the writer's shoes and, like, interpret what they're trying to say and, uh, and help them say it in the best way possible. So I, I, think, I think that's a really poetic act in many ways uh, and probably why I became a copy editor. Um, because uh, I, I ran screaming from academia uh, and uh, was like, well, what do I do with these, you know, two degrees in, po 2.25 degrees in poetry, um, I guess, copy edit. Uh, so, so yeah, I, and even, you know, now I work at, right now I work at a, you know, magazine that, you know, is known for great writing. But before that, I was copy editing, you know, um, travel deals on the internet. And even doing that has a sort of, like, creative, uh, sort of poetic quality because you do still have to step into the writer's shoes and, like, think, like, what are they trying to communicate? And also think about the reader in that context, too, and be a sort of, like, a consumer advocate. So I don't know. I'm just blabbing. I, I think I think copy editing is a poetic act and that uh, people who approach it uh, uh, 
otherwise are bad copy editors. <laughs> I think that's such a generous answer. I love that. I think copy editing as a form of listening is a really um, intimate thing to be able to offer a writer. We might cut this out, but I'm going to just like add a little story. So I had the the great pleasure of getting to uh, do the layout and copy editing for Dodie Bellamy's Cunt Norton, her sequel to Cunt Ups. And so Cunt Norton is uh, taking the like, was like 1970-something Norton anthology of poetry and um and uh, cutting it up with um the erotica text that she that she used um from from kind of so what kind of what we were like tasked with doing was like or what we ended up doing I, I don't know if we had to do this we went and got that edition of the Martin anthology and like went and checked all of, like actually went back to the original texts um and there was myself and a couple uh, of interns that I was supervising doing this and just this like act of being, uh, we were working out of a basement and uh, just like being in this basement with this like manuscript that we had like printed out and working through uh, these poems and these things. It was just like, it was the, I mean, I, yeah, it was like one of the coolest things that I've ever done and to, uh, like, I don't know, I feel like we could probably publish the correspondence with Dodie um, of, like, all of the questions that we were asking, um, like, um, about just, like, should the preposition be, like, in the ass or should it be on the ass? Um, like, is that in from, because it was on in the uh, original, like, Stevens poem, but is that in from your text? And um, just kind of, yeah, this just this litany of just like pretty ridiculous um, things, but this, yeah, this kind of, the, so this, this act of copy editing, this act of kind of finalizing the text was this creative act. It was also like a, a group communal act um, as well to kind of bring, bring the text into, into existence. The TOA podcast is a production of The Offending Adam, a literary nonprofit publishing new writing alongside innovative editorial engagement that invites readers into the context, history, and processes of literary creation. Each month, theoffendingadam.com launches new digital chapbooks, plus podcasts and newsletters that take you deeper into the poetic weeds. Listeners can join the TOA community at www.theoffendingadam.com to help support the artists TOA publishes. Today's podcast was hosted by me, Avni Vyas, and edited by Nick DeDominic. Music by Palberta. Our other editors are Andrew Wessels, Ryan Wynette, and Whitney Holmes. Thanks for listening.